Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds fam, it's Amit Goyal, and I am so excited to be back here with my friends from right here at Cleveland Clinic to discuss cardiology. I'd like to welcome to the show Drs. Simrath Kaur, Gary Parisher, and Alejandro Duran Crane. Welcome to the show, and would you please introduce yourself? Hey, Amit. Thanks for the introduction. I am Simrath. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow at Cleveland Clinic, and I'm interested in advanced cardiac imaging. Really excited to talk about this case. Hey, Ahmed, this is Alejandro Duran. I am a first-year cardiology fellow also at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm originally from Bogota, Colombia, and I'm currently counting the number of CVICU calls that I have left to finish my first year. It's a pleasure to be here with Simrad and Gary as well. Hi, Ahmed. I'm Gary, third-year fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, pursuing advanced cardiac imaging, staying here at CCF next year. And I am also counting down Alejandro's calls in the ICU. Guys, it's such an honor to have you all on for this episode and even more special because I am more and more acutely aware that I'm going to be leaving Cleveland and Cleveland Clinic in just a handful of weeks, couple of months. And so I just want to immerse myself every moment I get to spend time with you, whether it's at work or here on the podcast. And speaking of how much I have grown to love this beautiful city, where do you guys want to hang out? I have an idea. You know, April has been really kind in terms of the weather and it's warming up. And just down the street from my house is a lovely little ice cream shop called Mason's Creamery. And they have some of the best ice cream in the city. I know that's a controversial opinion, but I stand by it. Oh, those are great ice creams. I definitely will come with you. Very controversial. I am loyal to Mitchell's and will always be loyal to Mitchell's. You guys are all going down. I am all about Jenny's. But for everyone out there, Clevelanders are apparently very particular about their local ice cream brands. But ice cream aside, why don't we talk about cardiology? What's our case today? So I wanted to bring this case forward. It's a very interesting case. So I'll start with the case presentation and then we'll break it down as we go. This is a patient that we saw in our outpatient cardiovascular imaging clinic. He's a 62-year-old Caucasian male who presented for consideration of septal reduction therapies for long-standing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, he had a long history of cardiac problems. He was initially diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy 12 years ago when he presented with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. An initial uh, TTE at that time showed an ejection fraction of 80% and hypertrophic septum with an interventricular septum measuring 2.3 centimeters. A mid-cavitary gradient in the left ventricle was present, and at the time, he denied any history of syncope or symptoms of heart failure. Per the patient, he was told that he had an enlarged heart and that this was likely due to hypertensive cardiomyopathy, given that he had a long-standing history of hypertension with concomitant kidney disease. He did not undergo any genetic testing or cardiac MRI at the time, and he was managed conservatively with metoprolol succinate and anticoagulation with warfarin. He did well until six years ago when he had a recurrence of atrial fibrillation and flutter. At this point, he underwent pulmonary vein isolation and cavotricuspid isthmus ablation. Then two years ago, he presented with an episode of syncope, and he was found to have complete heart block, for which a dual-chamber pacemaker was placed. After that, about approximately one year prior to presenting to our clinic, he developed progressive dyspnea on exertion, where he was previously able to walk 7 to 10 miles while playing golf and fishing, 
His functional class had progressively gotten worse over the last year to the point where he could only walk 50 yards or one flight of stairs before having to stop to catch his breath. He also endorsed orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, but he denied angina, palpitations, lower extremity edema, or recent episodes of syncope. He then saw his local cardiologist, who suspected that his hypertrophic cardiomyopathy had progressed, and referred him to our center for further evaluation. That was great, Alejandro. Very detailed. Thank you. It is quite interesting that the patient is referred to us for subcutaneous reduction therapies. When you see that a patient has had workup elsewhere in an outside institution and has been given a diagnosis, it is easy to immediately get tunnel vision and focus your plan on the management of referring diagnosis. But by describing the patient's symptom in chronological order like you did and focusing on the presenting chief complaint rather than the referring physician's impression, you keep your differential diagnosis open and mitigate the risks of premature closure. So strong work there. Please continue. Thanks, Imran. I'll continue by saying that the patient's medical history was also significant for end-stage renal disease attributed to long-standing uncontrolled hypertension for which he underwent a living donor renal transplant about 20 years ago. His sister was his donor, and he also had a history of heterozygous factor V lighting deficiency that was diagnosed several years ago after he presented with the DVT during an episode of gout that left him bedridden for a few days. His family history was significant for heart disease and his mother, who was told that she had an enlarged heart and passed away in her mid-70s due to unspecified cardiac causes. He also had a son who was recently diagnosed with a neuroendocrine malignant tumor. Otherwise, his medications included metoprolol succinate, 100 mg daily, lovastatin, 40 mg daily, warfarin, 3 mg daily, immunosuppression for his renal transplant with tacrolimus, 0.5 mg twice daily, mycophenolate, 1 gram twice daily, and prednisone, 5 mg daily. He took acyclovir, 400 mg twice daily for prophylaxis, and allopurinol, 300 mg twice daily for prevention of gout. In terms of his social and lifestyle history, he endorsed minimal alcohol intake with one or two drinks a month and had never smoked previously. All right, Simran. So you emphasized keeping an open differential. What do you think is going on with this guy? Since he's been diagnosed with HCM, clearly I must consider that. But his chief complaint is dyspnea, so we have to investigate the other common causes of dyspnea, such as coronary artery disease, heart failure, valve disease, as well as lung disease. Good thoughts, I agree. It sounds like he developed ESRD at a fairly young age, which was attributed to hypertension. His blood pressure has been high for a long time. Maybe he has hypertensive heart disease. Maybe he has secondary hypertension. That can lead to concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, which might look like HCM. Absolutely. Common things being common, this is definitely a possibility. I'm intrigued by his burden of arrhythmias too. I think we have to keep in mind some unusual diagnoses such as infiltrative cardiomyopathies and lysosomal storage diseases. These can also result in thick ventricular walls. His family history of heart disease raises some concern for a possible heritable condition as well. Definitely. Alejandro, what did he look like on exam? Great comments, both of you guys. I agree with all that you said. And before I go on with the physical exam, Gary, I'd like to point out that it was interesting that he also developed a complete heart block. Along with Simrad's line of thought, I think the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy and conduction disease should make us consider a common underlying pathophysiologic process, which could be the case for infiltrative cardiomyopathies. For now, let's move on with our physical exam, and I'll tell you that on exam, when we met him, he was afebrile, his blood pressure was 132 or 85 millimeters of mercury with a heart rate of 62 beats per minute and a normal respiratory rate. He was well appearing and in no acute distress, there was no jugular venous distension. 
lungs were cleared of auscultation bilaterally, and his cardiac auscultation revealed a high-pitched crescendo-decrescendo murmur heard at the left lower sternal border. We couldn't appreciate an S3 or S4 sound, and his pulses were palpable and symmetrical in all four extremities with no lower extremity edema or otherwise any signs of fluid overload. Moving on to his initial lab work, his labs revealed normal electrolyte levels and a creatinine of 1.56 with a BUN of 28. Liver function tests were normal and blood counts revealed no leukocytosis with a hemoglobin of 17.4 and mild thrombocytopenia of 132,000. PT and PTT were normal and his INR was 1.2. His nt p was markedly elevated at 10,900. Interesting. So he has chronic kidney disease evidence on his transplanted kidney. We have a murmur on exam, but no obvious evidence of decompensated heart failure. And on labs, we could see that he has chronic kidney disease on his transplanted kidney. Maybe you were right, Gary, and he has valve disease after all. Yeah, we have to keep that in mind for sure. I'm already really excited to see what the echo is going to show. Yes, and we'll get there, Gary. For now, I'll tell you about his chest x-ray, which had no pulmonary abnormalities and showed the presence of a left chest wall dual chamber pacemaker with leads terminating in the right atrium and right ventricle. Cardiomediastinal silhouette was moderately enlarged. His EKG revealed an atrial sensed and ventricular pace rhythm with a wide QRS reflecting RV pacing at a rate of 90 beats per minute, which was consistent with his history of complete heart block requiring pacing. Oh, it would have been nice if he wasn't paced. Why do you say that, Simrit? You know, looking at the voltage would have been helpful for infiltrative cardiomyopathies and high voltages are suggestive for ventricular hypertrophy and low voltages are suggestive of infiltration. But since he's spaced with a wide complex, it's more difficult to interpret these changes. I guess we'll have to rely on that echo. You know it, Gary. And we know how much you like your echocardiogram. So here's his for you. The TTE that we performed on the day where we met him in our clinic showed a mildly dilated left ventricle with severe septal hypertrophy. His interventricular septum measured 2.7 centimeters in diastole. His LVEF was 56%, and there was also severe left atrial dilation. Valvular assessment revealed moderate 2-plus MR with severe posterior MAC or mitral annulus calcification, 2-plus TR, and 2-3-plus central AI. Significant valvular disease in our patient. His aortic root was dilated with 4.6 centimeters, and there was a small interatrial shunt with left-to-right flow on color flow Doppler. The color flow Doppler actually revealed flow acceleration in the LVOT, and his Doppler examination revealed a peak gradient of 24 millimeters of mercury at rest. Interestingly, the gradient increased after a PVC to at least 45 millimeters of mercury. With Valsalva, the LVOT gradient also increased up to 93 millimeters of mercury. Oh, I love it. So the post-PVC gradient augmentation is actually the echocardiographic equivalent of the brockenbrau broadwald morrow sign, where after a PVC, there is a compensatory pause that causes an increase in diastolic filling time and an increase in diastolic volume. That then yields an increase in LV contractility, which worsens the LVOT obstruction. Hemodynamically, this phenomenon can be seen as a paradoxical decrease in arterial pulse pressure after a PVC with an associated increase in LV systolic pressure. Wow, this is fascinating. How do you put together all of this, Gary? So the echocardiographic examination for this patient reveals a few interesting findings. First of all, it confirms the presence of septal hypertrophy with a septum of 2.7 centimeters. 
In most age groups, maximum LV thickness above 15 millimeters at any site in the chamber is consistent with identification of HCL. Secondly, these findings confirm the presence of LVOT obstruction with provocation, which includes the Valsalva maneuvers and the stress testing. And in some cases, we use inhaled amylitrate to provoke gradients as well. Valsalva increases the LVOT gradient by decreasing LV preload and therefore reducing LV diastolic volume, as well as decreasing arterial pressure. PVCs and exercise increase the LVOT gradient by increasing ventricular contractility and thus worsening the obstruction. Subaortic obstruction is dynamic and occurs because of sharp bending of the mitral valve leaflets, which contact the ventricular septum in mid-systole by means of a drag effect. This is called systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, or SAM. The magnitude of the gradient is directly proportional to the duration of mitral valve contact with the septum, which causes a posteriorly directed mitral regurgitation. Although in this patient, it sounds like mitral annular calcification is also contributing to dysfunction of the mitral valve. This patient had mitral regurgitation associated with SAM, which is frequently seen in patients with obstruction. However, it's worth noting that MR is also seen in up to 20% of patients without obstruction due to intrinsic valve abnormalities. Thanks, Gary. That's a great way to sum up his echo findings. I want to note that when you're evaluating patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, provoked gradients higher than 30 millimeters of mercury actually provide a prognostic information, and they predict development of heart failure with progression from NYHA class 1 or 2 to class 3 or 4 at a rate of 3% per year. So it's a significant finding in any patient with hypertrophic ventricle. Patients with obstruction are candidates for septal reduction therapies, while patients with no obstruction but heart failure symptoms, NYHA 3 or 4, are usually candidates for heart transplantation. To add to that, this patient also had moderate aortic and mitral regurgitation and an ASD with bidirectional shunting all of which can contribute to his symptoms. I think differentiating which abnormality is contributing to this patient's symptoms the most can be quite difficult, and often valvular disease and obstruction both play a role in the symptomatology of obstructive cardiomyopathy. Additionally, the coexistence of advanced valvular disease with LVH in this case is really important, as significant valvular abnormalities could be corrected if we make a decision to undergo surgical myectomy for his obstructive cardiomyopathy. Thanks, Alejandro. I think at this point, it is worth stopping to consider the differential diagnosis for left ventricular hypertrophy. LVH is extremely common and is present in 15 to 20% of general population and is more common in African-American, elderly, obese, or hypertensive individuals, with most cases being secondary to hypertension and aortic valve stenosis. In general terms, it is helpful to divide cases of LVH into three main groups. High afterload state, obstruction to left ventricular ejection, and intrinsic myocardial problems. Increased afterload states include both primary and secondary hypertension and renal arterial stenosis. Mechanical obstruction can refer to aortic stenosis, subaortic stenosis, and coarctation of aorta. And lastly, several intrinsic problems of the myocardium can also cause LV hypertrophy, such as an athlete's heart with physiological LVH, CM with or without outflow obstruction, infiltrative diseases such as cardiac amyloidosis, and lysosomal storage diseases such as Fabre's or Danin's disease. Gary, how would you approach the diagnosis in a patient with unexplained LVH? So I have the good fortune of seeing several patients with unexplained LVH in my weekly clinic in the imaging section, so I can give you guys a nice gist. Patients with unexplained LVH should undergo thorough initial evaluation with a comprehensive history, including three generations of family history and a physical exam. 
The initial investigations should include sort of routine things like an EKG, which can show signs of LVH, and an echocardiogram, which along with showing the pattern and the extent of LVH can also identify associated valvular pathologies such as mitral regurgitation, aortic valve issues, or evidence of LVOT obstruction and systolic anterior motion of the mitral. Patients without obvious obstruction should undergo provocative testing with either amyl nitrate or valsalva maneuvers. Stress echocardiography is an important investigation for patients who don't have evidence of obstruction because it helps to ascertain functional capacity in these patients and it can provoke gradients when they've been difficult to provoke with other measures. Holter monitoring is also an important investigation that helps us assess the extent of PVCs and arrhythmias with patients with HCL. Cardiac MRI is another imaging modality that allows for improved visualization of the LV geometry without any dependence on acoustic windows and aids in visualizing areas of hypertrophy and accurate wall thickness measurements. In addition, with contrast enhancement, it can identify areas of fibrosis with late gadolinium sequences, and that further helps risk stratify these patients for sudden cardiac arrest. Lastly, genetic screening is recommended by the American College of Cardiology and American Heart Association in all patients with phenotypic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to identify disease-causing variants. Genetic testing is also paramount in identifying HCM mimics in patients with unexplained LVH, and it can alter the management and long-term prognosis. That was a great summary of a diagnostic strategy for LVH, Gary. What other tests do you routinely get in patients who present with left ventricular hypertrophy to investigate for HCM mimics? That's a very important point, Alejandro. As we discussed, the presence of hypertrophy also warrants workup for infiltrative diseases such as cardiac amyloidosis, which can be mislabeled as HCM. As you may remember from other episodes in this podcast, the workup for cardiac amyloidosis includes technetium pyrophosphate nuclear scan to evaluate for ATTR amyloidosis, as well as serum testing for AL amyloidosis. Our patient underwent a PYB scan that was not consistent with TTR amyloidosis, and likewise had testing for AL amyloidosis that revealed an elevated protein-threatening ratio but no M-protein in serum or urine necrophoresis and immunofixation with a normal kappa-lambda light chain ratio. We therefore ruled out the possibility of TTR or cardiac amyloidosis. Okay, so we still need to check the box of genetic testing. So he did undergo genetic counseling and testing, Gary. After we ruled out cardiac amyloidosis, we wanted to know if our patient had a genetic or familial mutation that could explain his hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, especially because he had mentioned the history of an enlarged heart in his mother. So we referred him to our genetic counselors and specialists here at Cleveland Clinic. We are fortunate to have a close collaboration with the genetic specialists here at Cleveland Clinic, such as Dr. Angelica Irwin, from whom you'll hear later on. They evaluate many of our patients with suspected genetic cardiomyopathies, I performed detailed family history taking, as well as genetic testing. Our patient underwent a thorough genetic evaluation with family history and genetic testing, and his results did come back a few weeks later and showed no pathogenic variants associated with HCM. However, his testing did come back positive for four variants of unknown significance, or VUS. It is worth noting that with the introduction of commercially available genetic testing, 11 or more genes encoding proteins of the cardiac sarcomere have been found to be mutated in patients with HCM. However, there are over 2,000 genetic variants that have been associated with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and while some are clearly known to be pathogenic, others are more uncertain and as such are referred to as having unknown significance. Thanks, Alejandro. 
by this time, our patient was referred for evaluation by our surgical colleagues in anticipation for cardiac surgery to fix his obstruction and valvular heart disease. In anticipation of surgical planning, we performed a left heart catheterization to evaluate for any significant concomitant coronary artery disease that would require bypass at the time of surgery. His coronary angiography interestingly revealed diffuse disease in LED, left circ, as well as RCA. And interestingly, there was pruning noted in the mid to distal LED, distal first die, and OM2, a finding similar to what we would see with coronary allograft vasculopathy in heart transplant patients. Oh, what a strange observation, because distal pruning is usually reserved for patients with CAV post-transplant. Something very fishy is going on with this guy, and I wonder what it is. Yeah, it was definitely strange. But because he was so symptomatic, he was promptly evaluated for surgery and eventually underwent septal myectomy with resection of 18 grams of tissue from his interventricular septum through a transaortic approach. The surgeon noted a pale appearance of his septum, which is often actually seen with infiltrative cardiomyopathies. However, as we recall, his amyloid dusting was negative. Along with doing septal myectomy, they performed primary closure of secundum AST, debride window of mitral annular calcification, and caudal sparing mitral valve replacement with the 29 biocore valves. They also performed AS ascending aortic aneurysm repair with the 30 millimeter Galbi aortic graft. The patient also required aortic valve replacement with 25 Carpentier Edwards valve and left atrial appendage closure due to his history of atrial fibrillation. So, as we do with all our septal myectomy cases, our surgical team sent the resected myocardium for analysis to our specialized cardiovascular pathology lab. Pathology from the resected cardiac tissue surprisingly revealed myocyte hypertrophy and extensive vacuolization of the sarcoplasm. Importantly, there was no myocyte disarray as we would expect in the case of HCM. The small intramural coronary arteries were thickened and also showed conspicuous vacuolization of the small, smooth muscle cells. Overall, the histopathological changes in the aorta, mitral valve, and myocardium were consistent with cardiovascular involvement as we see in patients with Fabrice disease. Oh, wow. Fabrice. Well, a huge turning point in this case. We were definitely surprised when we got these pathology results back. It wasn't only unexpected, but it was also clarifying in the sense that it explained multiple things in this patient's history, such as his history of renal disease requiring transplantation, his history of complete heart block requiring a pacemaker, and potentially his family history of left ventricular hypertrophy in his mother. After this finding, we looked back to the patient's genetic testing, which had reported four variants of uncertain significance, if you remember, one of which was in the GLA gene, which is the gene coding for alpha-galactosidase that is affected in Fabry's disease. Specifically, this patient's mutation was in the GLA gene XN2. I think it's important to note that many variants of unknown significance are associated with ubiquitous screening and are identified commonly in the healthy population, so they don't always signify disease. The majority of VUS are eventually downgraded, but some of them are identified as pathogenic decades later. While this variant was suspicious, it did not make it to the level of pathogenic or likely pathogenic by our laboratory standards, and hence was missed. Hmm, that's very interesting, Alejandro. Definitely an interesting case. I can share a little bit of information about Fabry disease. So it's an X-linked lysosomal storage disorder caused by pathogenic variants in the GLA gene that result in reduced alpha-galactosidase enzyme activity, which leads to accumulation of lysosomal globo 
triacylceramide, and globotriacylsphingosine in affected tissues, including the heart, the kidneys, the vasculature, and peripheral nervous system. The reported incidence of this disease is said to be between 1 in 40,000 to 1 in 117,000 individuals. But actually, screening in newborns suggests that this incidence may be underestimated, as it's present in 1 of 8,800 newborns screened. Proteinuria is one of the most common presentations, with the majority of affected patients developing CKD. More than a thousand GLA variants have been identified, and these can be pathogenic or benign or of unclear significance, as was the case with our patient. While nonsense or missense variants or premature stop codons can lead to absent or very low alpha-gal enzyme activity causing early onset disease, other missense variants can be associated with some residual enzymatic activity, which can lead to late-onset Fabry disease, predominantly affecting the heart. Thanks, Gary. It sounds like our patient had early real involvement with cardiac involvement later on in his life. Now, you mentioned that this is an X-linked disease. Does this mean that it presents mostly in males? That's an excellent question, Alejandro. In females, X-chromosome random inactivation or lionization can sometimes lead to heterogeneous manifestations of these diseases. And in males, confirmation of severely reduced alpha-galactosidase levels is often sufficient for diagnosis, even though you get genetic testing afterwards. But if you just do enzymatic testing in males, it's sufficient. However, male patients with late-onset disease, as well as female patients, may have higher alpha-galactosidase levels, in which case concomitant genetic testing is important to make the diagnosis. All diagnoses or suspicions for Fabry's disease should be confirmed by genetic testing, and once it is confirmed, all family members at risk should be screened for following an X-chromosome pattern of inheritance. It is interesting that this patient got his kidney from his sister and never received a biopsy prior to kidney, and it's quite possible that his sister had Fabry's disease and ended up getting a kidney that was affected with Fabry's. That's fascinating. And, you know, deposition of GB3 in the heart can manifest in multiple ways, including conduction abnormalities, LVH, cardiomyopathy, valvular disease, and CAD. Coronary arteries are also affected with intramural narrowing of coronaries due to hypertrophy and smooth muscle proliferation, which can result in coronary artery pruning with overall decreased vessel diameter, as was observed in our case. This same pathogenic mechanism leads to fibrosis and involvement of conduction tissue, which can lead to the development of conduction disturbances, ventricular arrhythmias. This probably explains the history of complete heart block in our patient. Aortic remodeling in Fabry disease has been well described as well, and often presents as sinus of valsalva dilation or ascending aortic aneurysm. And our patient also had extracardiac manifestations, including the ESRD, which in hindsight is more likely than not Fabry's nephropathy. Unfortunately, like you said, Simrat, he never underwent a renal biopsy prior to the transplant or after the transplant, which would have likely assisted in the diagnosis of his condition. The presence of proneuria in his transplanted kidney was also probably a manifestation of Fabry disease due to the absence of alpha-gal activity. Other extracardiac manifestations include neuropathy, GI symptoms, cutaneous angiokeratomas, cornea verticillata, which is golden brown or gray discoloration of the corneal epithelium, hypohydrosis, and exercise intolerance, as well as the proteinuria and renal failure, on top of juvenile cryptogenic strokes, hearing loss, chronic white matter hyperintensities on brain MR, and even lymphedema. Wow, this is a great summary of all the clinical manifestations of Fabry disease, Gary. But can you speak more about how to come to a unifying diagnosis when you suspect Fabry disease in an individual? 
I can take this, Alejandro. Clinical suspicion and careful review of family history are the first steps towards a diagnosis of Fabry's disease, which is typically established by genetic testing and occasionally enzymatic testing in males. And as we recall, it's not that reliable in females. The use of multimodality imaging, including TTE and cardiac MRI, can be very helpful for characterizing cardiac involvement in Fabry's disease. Cardiac MRI can be used for identification of fibrosis by late gadolinium enhancement and accurate assessment and quantification of LBH as well as the size of ascending aorta. CMR can not only be used for identification of LVH, but can also be used for identification of particular patterns, mainly mid-myocardial and sub-epicardial LGE in the basal to mid-inferolateral wall, which is often seen in patients with Fabry's disease. Another important feature of CMR is the low native T1 times. LGE relies on differential signal intensity to identify regions of edema and fibrosis and is less sensitive in diagnosis of diffuse processes. Tissue characterization utilizing T1 mapping allows for direct measurement of global or regional T1 relaxation times of the myocardium. Low T1 times have been attributed to intracellular glycosphingolipid accumulation and can appear to be sensitive for the detection of patients of Fabry's disease, with low T1 times otherwise only noted in patients with iron overload. However, with advanced stage in fibrosis, it can lead to extensive LGE and pseudo-normalization of native T1 times. So it really depends on what stage of the disease we are performing the CMR. You are spot on, Simran. I also want to mention how far we've come with the treatment of these patients. Fabry-specific treatments include enzyme replacement therapy and the pharmacological chaperone megalostat. There are new therapeutic approaches in development. The main objective of the treatment of Fabry disease is prevention of disease progression and end organ damage. Enzyme replacement therapy with a galsidase alpha or beta intravenous injections every other week. A galsidase alpha is produced in human cell lines, while the beta form of the enzyme is produced by recombinant DNA technology using other mammalian cells. Enzyme replacement therapy is indicated in patients with late-onset Fabry disease who have presence of laboratory, histological, or imaging evidence of injury to the heart, kidney, or CNS. It can delay the progression of cardiac disease and reduce the cardiovascular event rates in patients with Fabry disease. Another available pharmacological agent is the chaperone agent megalostat, which can be helpful for specific genetic variants of Fabry disease by stabilizing the translated form of alpha-galactosidase. This chaperone agent is given in oral tablets every other day, which is much more convenient than the IV infusions required for ERT. There is ongoing development of novel therapies for Fabry disease with second-generation ERTs, substrate reduction therapies, and gene and mRNA therapies. The long-term follow-up studies and registry data show that ERT delays cardiac disease progression and reduces the cardiovascular event rate. Evidence also suggests that LVH may be prevented by early treatment However, data is lacking in advanced myocardial fibrosis. That's very educational, Gary. Thanks. It's reassuring to know that there are all of these available treatment modalities to improve outcomes in patients with Fabry disease. Now, coming back to our patient, he recovered from cardiac surgery and referred for outpatient cardiology follow-up for consideration of enzyme replacement therapy. In conclusion, I think this is an exemplary case in many ways, and it was certainly educational and humbling to me as a first-year cardiology fellow. For one, it served as a reminder to always go through a complete differential diagnosis when encountering a cardiomyopathy and to always consider rare diseases as an underlying etiology rather than anchoring in more common etiologies for a clinical presentation. I think this is true for any clinical scenario that we encounter as physicians. Especially in this case, 
Other extracardiac manifestations provided several cues to the presence of an underlying systemic illness that could explain all of his manifestations in a unifying diagnosis. Also, this case is a clear example of how in cardiology we must put together all of the information from the patient's history and from multiple available diagnostic studies including EKG, echocardiography, coronary angiography, cardiac MRI, and genetic testing among others to put together an overarching impression of the patient's diagnosis and how this makes sense with the clinical presentation. Thank you, Simrad and Gary, for walking us through this very educational case. You guys are extraordinary senior fellows to have, and I am lucky to learn from you on a daily basis. Thank you, Alejandro, for an outstanding case presentation. I loved it. Let's go over a couple of teaching points here. So one, left ventricular hypertrophy is a cardiac manifestation of several different systemic and cardiospecific processes, and its etiology should always be clarified to avoid missing diagnoses and treatment opportunities. Two, Fabry's disease is a rare X-linked inherited disease that can present as cardiac and extracardiac manifestations, former of which include hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, conduction defects, coronary artery disease, and arrhythmias and heart failure. The diagnosis of Fabry disease includes measurement of alpha-galactosidase enzyme activity, as well as genetic testing to evaluate for pathogenic variants or variants of unknown significance in the GLA gene. All diagnosed individuals should have their family members screened based on the inheritance pattern of the disease. Multimodality imaging can be helpful in the diagnosis of Faber disease. Echocardiography can show LVH, reduced global strain, aortic and mitral valve abnormalities, and aortic root dilation with associated mild to moderate aortic regurgitation. Cardiac MRI can show hypertrophy of papillary muscles, midwall lake adalinium enhancement, and low native T1. The treatment of Fabry disease involves a multidisciplinary approach with geneticists, nephrologists, cardiologists, and primary care doctors. Enzyme replacement therapy can delay progression of cardiac disease. And I see these patients in my clinic with Dr. Wild Jaber at the Cleveland Clinic. And I'll tell you, once you establish the diagnosis of Fabry disease and refer for enzyme replacement therapy, you really follow these people as a general cardiologist over the course of their lives. You watch out for their arrhythmias, you watch out for coronary disease, you watch out for valve disease. They really manifest the full gamut of cardiac pathology, and it's an absolute pleasure and honor to take care of them. Thanks, Carrie. That's an excellent way to sum it up. Yes, that was awesome. Wow. Guys, what a fabulous, fabulous discussion. Thank you so much for these outstanding teaching points. Same with Gary Alejandro. Really enjoyed learning from you. Big thanks to your patient for teaching us today. And Simra, thank you especially for proposing to bring this case to Cardinals in the first place. Anytime. And now for expert opinion, we have Dr. Angelica Irvin, who is a clinical geneticist at Cleveland Clinic and has been an amazing resource for us and patients like these. She helps us in managing these patients and works in collaboration with the cardiologist. And we would love to hear her insight in management of these patients. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Angelica Irwin, and I'm a medical geneticist and internist here at the Cleveland Clinic. And I'm also the director of the Lysosomal Storage Disease Program. I'm really excited to be part of today's podcast about Fabry disease, which is a condition that I feel very passionate about. And I would like to thank Simrad, Alejandro, and Gary for having presented this really interesting patient. There are a lot of great teaching points that I think we can take away from this specific case. And I hope we can raise awareness and interest in this rare condition. Here at the Cleveland Clinic, we currently follow around 60 to 70 patients with fibroid disease. And in the past several years, an increasing number of these patients have actually been picked up by genetic testing for cardiomyopathies. 
And the genetic testing has become much more easily available and accessible. And I think that explains why we have seen this uptick in Fabry diagnoses that come out of the genetic testing for cardiomyopathies. I therefore think that it is really important for cardiologists to be aware of this condition and also have an understanding of the clinical presentation as well as the interpretation of genetic testing results, especially if a genetic specialist is not immediately available at an institution. Now, since I'm not a cardiologist, my focus today won't be on the cardiologic aspects of Fabry disease, which have, by the way, also already been presented in a very detailed and really excellent fashion by Simrad and her colleagues. But I will concentrate more on the genetics, the clinical presentation, the diagnostic approaches, and the management of the condition. Now, you've already heard quite a bit about Fabry disease from Simrad, Alejandro, and Gary, but I do want to take this case as a starting point to delve deeper into some aspects of the disease. So let's start with this patient's journey through the healthcare system and identify the different points at which a diagnosis of Fabry disease could have been established but was missed. And this is by no means a criticism of other physicians or medical providers. And unfortunately, diagnostic delays are very, very common in rare disorders. And the continuous efforts to raise awareness is really necessary to increase the odds that a patient may be diagnosed early in the disease course which may then enable us to start treatment early and in turn save organ function and ultimately improve quality of life as well as life expectancy. So this particular patient presented many years ago with renal insufficiency, which then progressed to end-stage renal disease. And at that point, his disease was attributed to chronic hypertension. And this is really not an unusual situation. We have several patients who've presented in a similar way in their 20s and 30s with end-stage renal disease and then went on to receiving a kidney transplant without having had a biopsy or genetic testing that could have led to a diagnosis. But here we certainly have a point where a patient could have been diagnosed and that would have led to earlier treatment and possibly either delay or avoidance of longer-term complications. Even if the diagnosis is made when a patient is already transplanted or is heading towards transplant, Making the diagnosis at that point is still valuable because the time that was lost for treatment really also means time that we lost to save tissue and that really led to disease progression overall. Now, this patient was then found to have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy 12 years before he was finally diagnosed with Fabry disease. And so again, here we have loss of valuable time that could have been used for treatment and that may have led to either slowing down of the disease progression or even avoidance of some of the complications that he developed later on. Now, thankfully, this patient was correctly diagnosed in the end, albeit at a pretty late stage in his disease course. And while the cardiac manifestations are irreversible and he already underwent a renal transplant, the treatment of the condition is still indicated to slow down further progression as much as possible and with the goal to avoid additional complications such as strokes for which this patient is certainly also at risk. In addition, this patient has a daughter who, given the X-linked inheritance, is an obligate carrier of Fabry disease. This means that she should also be followed and treated, and also that she needs to be made aware that she has a 50% risk of passing on the familial Fabry disease variant to her children. Now, generally, when we diagnose one patient with Fabry disease, we almost always find additional affected relatives whose medical management is significantly impacted by this diagnosis. But let's take a step back and talk about Fabry disease a bit more in detail. So Fabry disease is caused by pathogenic variants in the GLA gene, 
And there are currently more than 900 variants that have been identified to cause Faber disease. Given the X-linked inheritance, males are usually more severely affected than females because they tend to have a higher residual enzyme activity than males. However, females with Faber disease are not just carriers like in other X-linked conditions. But in Faber disease, most affected women will eventually present with some disease manifestation. The disease severity among females is very variable, though. So even among affected women in the same family, there can be some women who have very mild disease, and then there can be others who, even though they carry the same um, mutation or variant, have a much more severe clinical manifestation or picture. And that is due to random X inactivation in women. In fact, some women can be as severely affected as males. And in general, we do follow females just as closely as we follow males with Fabry disease. When we talk about diagnosing Fabry disease, we have to really distinguish between diagnosing males and diagnosing females. So because of the residual enzyme activity in females being high or higher than we would expect in males, we cannot use enzymatic testing to make a diagnosis in a woman. In women, we always have to do genetic testing to really reliably make a diagnosis of Fabry disease or exclude it. Now, in males, we can do either enzymatic testing or molecular or genetic testing. And we usually like to at least confirm a diagnosis that was made based on enzymatic testing with genetic testing so that we can then also use that result or that information to test female relatives. I do want to come back to the patient that was presented by Simrat, Gary, and Alejandro because this particular patient was found to have a variant of uncertain significance in the GLA gene. Now, the great thing about Fabry disease is that in addition to the molecular testing, we do have enzymatic testing at our disposal. So if you ever find a patient who has a variant of uncertain significance in the GLA gene, especially if it's a male, you should always follow up that test result with enzymatic testing because that can really help clarify if that variant of uncertain significance or VUS is a pathogenic variant or if it's rather benign. If you have a woman who has a VUS in the, in the GLA gene, it is a little bit more tricky because, as I mentioned in women, enzymatic testing is not as reliable. But here we can also obtain biomarkers, which are in Faber disease plasma and lysoGB3. And GB3 stands for globotriacylceramide, which is a substrate, a sphingolipid that is accumulating in individuals with Faber disease. In a patient with symptomatic and untreated Faber disease, the lysoGB3 will very likely always be elevated. At least I have not seen a symptomatic Faber disease patient with a normal lysoGB3. So if you have a woman who has a VUS in the GLA gene, I would definitely recommend doing additional workup and getting the biomarkers to further narrow down whether or not that particular variant is disease-causing or if it's a benign variant. And so in most cases, a tissue biopsy to look for GB3 accumulation is not necessary, and enzymatic or biomarker testing it can be immensely helpful in determining the pathogenicity of a variant of uncertain significance. So let's say we made a new diagnosis of Faber disease in a patient. The next step is to obtain a complete baseline evaluation to assess how severely affected a patient is. Generally, we distinguish between classic and atypical or late-onset Faber disease. And which type is present largely depends on the residual enzyme activity. Now, for some GLA variants, there is a very clear genotype-phenotype correlation. And we can already say, based on the genetic testing result, 
if a patient may have a late onset or atypical fiber disease that will most likely only affect the heart or the kidneys, in which case we talk about a cardiac or a renal variant. But in most cases, it may not be immediately clear based on the genetic variant how severely affected a patient is until every organ system is really assessed. In classic fiber disease, where we have very little residual enzyme activity, we usually have involvement of the kidneys, the heart, and the nervous system, which can manifest with early onset strokes. In addition, patients frequently report pain in hands and feet that is often triggered by exercise, extreme temperature, and febrile illness. And this type of neuropathic pain is also referred to as acroparesthesias, and it can be the first symptom in childhood, especially in boys. And so in retrospect, many patients with fiber disease report that when they were younger, they had this neuropathic pain in their hands and feet that was thought to be growing pains when in fact they were actually experiencing fiber-related neuropathic pain. Another frequent but rather unspecific complaint in fiber disease are GI issues, which can also occur in childhood or teenage years and are often the first disease manifestation in girls. Again, it's a very unspecific presentation and finding and not something that would usually trigger the thought of fiber disease in a girl without a family history. Now, whether to start a patient on treatment can be pretty straightforward, especially if a patient is diagnosed because he or she presents with fiber-related symptoms, like the patient that was described in this podcast today. And in those cases, treatment is almost always indicated. Where it gets a little bit more tricky is when we have individuals who were diagnosed by cascade testing after a relative was found to have fibroid disease. Now, in males with fibroid disease, the recommendation is frequently to start treatment at the latest by age 10 or earlier if the disease manifestations are present. Now, in a patient like this, in an adult male patient with fibroid disease, who likely already has disease manifestations, we likely would almost always recommend starting the treatment of the disease. In females, it is often more difficult to determine if the best time of treatment is present, and we therefore monitor women with fiber disease on an annual basis. At the presence of the first symptom or disease manifestation, treatment should be started to slow down the disease progression and to avoid long-term complications as much as possible. And there are peer-reviewed monitoring guidelines that have been published that we tend to follow quite closely. And so on an annual basis, in a patient with fiber disease who is not on treatment, but even if they're on treatment, we still follow them very closely. But if we have a patient who is not on treatment, such as this patient's daughter, for example, we would evaluate renal function and biomarkers annually. And we also work very closely with our cardiologists and patients have annual echoes, EKGs, Holter studies, and then also cardiac MRIs that are extremely important. And while not necessarily performed on an annual basis, they should be part of regular screening for cardiac involvement. In general, since many undiagnosed patients with fiber disease have cardiac manifestations such as cardiomyopathy, they are likely to be evaluated by a cardiologist and sometimes even as the first subspecialty that sees those patients. So I find it so very important that this diagnosis be kept in mind by cardiologists, especially since this is one of the few genetic cardiomyopathies that we have treatment for. And so let's talk about the different therapeutic options that we have currently available. So the two main treatment approaches are enzyme replacement therapy, or short ERT, and chaperone therapy. In the U.S., we currently have two different enzyme products that are FDA approved. One is Fabrozyme, which has been around for more than 20 years, and the other one is Alfabrio, which is a pegylated form of enzyme and has just been approved by the FDA a few months ago. 
Enzyme replacement therapy is given intravenously every other week, and patients can receive ERT regardless of their underlying GLA variant. The other option, the chaperone therapy, is called Galifold, and this medication stabilizes the residual protein that's produced by the cells, and it comes as a capsule that is taken orally every other day. The main difference, apart from the administration, obviously, is that only certain GLA variants qualify for this treatment, and many of the variants that cause the severe classic type of fibroid disease are not eligible for treatment with Galifold. Now, overall, ERT and chaperone treatment are not a curative approach and they're far from perfect, but they are better than doing nothing and watching patients deteriorate as the disease progresses. There is definitely a need for better and more permanent therapies, and a lot of research is going on, for example, in the area of gene therapy and gene editing. For now, though, I think making a timely diagnosis to be able to intervene early in the disease course and start patients in treatment remains still the most important aspect. And I hope that you will all keep fiber disease in your differential diagnosis when seeing patients who could fit this clinical picture. So thank you very much for having me on here today and for listening. Oh, and with respect to the best ice cream in Cleveland, I am definitely with Simrat here and on Team Mitchell. Thank you so much for tuning in to this Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Diane Maskett. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth-year medical student at Rowan Virtua School of Osteopathic Medicine in New Jersey. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our new and exciting upcoming episodes. And now, my friends, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.